I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and no, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. All right, before we get started today, wanted to shout out a couple of the reviews that we've had on the podcast. These really mean a lot. They help other folks find the show and they provide feedback for Sayer and I. So from B. Jilovec, who I'm sure I mispronounced your name, so sorry for that. He said, it was an honor hearing your grandfather's story. Keep up the great work. Next review is from Midwest James. Outstanding podcast that offers a very thoughtful and humble look at a range of historical events. Really appreciate that, James. And with that, on to the show. All right, what's going on, everyone? Uh, Preston and Sayer here on War Stories, joined today by Ian Richardson. Ian, thanks for taking the time to do this, man. Absolutely, man. Anytime. Nice snowy so, day in Louisville. Yeah, there we go. As my three-year-old daughter calls, any time there's snow on the ground, she calls it a snow day. And it's lined up to where, like, we get more snow on the week. We had a couple snow days, like school closed. And then it snowed on weekends, so there's no school. So she now associates any day with snow as a snow day. Happy snow day. I still do. I still do. I mean, today's a day off of school because it's MLK Junior Day, but it feels like a snow day, even though they'd have been home regardless. Hey, they're almost they're almost all snow days anyway in Kentucky. I mean, you get moment you get more than two inches of snow, Fort Knox shuts down and nobody knows what to do with themselves. It's true. Also true. Campbell was that way. So we uh, Ian's been on the podcast a couple times before talking about the Cold War. We started that. Um, as like, let's talk for an hour about the Cold War. And then like four hours later, four parts later, we actually wrapped up the Cold War because that's a massive period of time with a lot of, lot of details. So um, rather than go super broad like we did that time, Sayer and I asked Ian if he would come on and talk a little more specific about Ukraine because that's kind of been in the news every single day now for a little while. Um, oh, yeah. And I guess to get it started, Ian, I had somebody the other day tell me, I used the term the Ukraine, and they said that was derogatory. They did it in a way that you don't see on the internet, which was very kind and respectful, instead of assuming that I meant something by it, but never heard that. Yeah, the whole, so I, I found myself early on kind of trying to, having to try and correct that too. And it's, I, it, it's a legacy, it's kind of a legacy thing from the era of the Soviet Union, it was, and also Imperial Russia, really. Um, it, it's weird to think about, but all you gotta do is add that little the beforehand and it, it kind of, it, it's weird. It almost like not delegitimizes it or delegitimizes the existence of like a Ukrainian state, but it, it, it almost by, by calling it the Ukraine, it encompasses just a region and not so much an, a national and ethnic identity. And I, uh -huh. and that's kind of where it comes from. It's, it's the idea that during the, period of the soviet union ukraine was just another one of the 15 or so odd republics that were part of the greater union of soviet republics and the ukraine is kind of a a derogatory for a region whereas ukraine is now especially post 1991 you know a ethnic and national entity um and it also depends when you're where you think the borders are who you think is Ukrainian, who isn't, you know, there's a lot of, there's a long history there of fighting and a cultural, um, 
conflict within what we would consider the borders of modern day Ukraine, the state um, over, you know, the Polishness of it, the Ukrainianness of it, who's who, um, where the border ends is, you know, how do you spell Kiev? <laughs> how do you spell Lviv, Lvov? That those are two things that you don't, especially amongst Ukrainians and Poles, um, you see a lot of infighting over the, the history of Ukraine, a lot like a lot like Poland, um, is pretty divisive. Um, just in the fact of defining what it is and where it is, um, because most you can look back most recently, kind of at as far as border conflicts, the um, 1919, 1918, at the end of World War One, mm -hmm. um, when there was a lot of infighting over um, what the Polishness and Ukrainianness of what we would call Ukraine today. The borders shifted quite a bit, especially during the Soviet border. The is that uh, Polish border war. Is that separate from or a part of the Russian Revolution? Uh, it's, it, I, would, I would say it's separate, um, but it's got like anything else in that region, everything's kind of tied together. So gotcha. there was 1918 to 1920-ish is a pretty fluctuating time for Ukraine and uh, people that consider themselves ethnically Ukrainian. You've got a government, you have a socialist government that exists, exists briefly. You have an independent Ukrainian government that exists briefly for like, we're talking like months here yeah. over the span of like two years. And also during, you have the Polish-Soviet war that breaks out in about 1919-ish, 1920. And initially the momentum is behind the Poles and the Poles are led by kind of a militarist. Um, he's a left-leaning, more social kind of leaning guy. Uh, Pilsudski is his name. Um, who kind of leads the armies of Poland early on when they gained their independence in 1919. But initially, when they have the momentum, uh, the Polish armies move into Ukraine and claim Kiev, all the way down to Kiev as, as part of the new Polish state. Um, and this, this really, they get booted out pretty quickly, not just by the Red Army, the Soviet Army at this time, but also Ukrainian nationalists um, who are there to um, establish their own independent state. And there's a lot of infighting. And even today, you've got, because there's so much cross-pollination culturally, Poles that live in Ukraine, Ukrainians that live in Poland, yada, yada. Romania's right nearby, Moldova. Um, you have so much cross-pollination that even uh, like the city of Lvov or Lviv, Lviv, L-V-I-V, is the, Pol the Ukrainian spelling of it. Lvov is the Polish spelling of it. And depending on the person you're talking to, as someone who grew up in the Chicago area, got a lot of Ukrainian friends, got a lot of Polish friends, all first generation here. And you know how to piss one off if, um, if you know them. So, you know. Is it that those little things are still enough to upset somebody our age, 20s, 30s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And, I, and I, think, I think part of that has been brought on by there's definitely more since the fall of the Soviet Union, there's a there's a pride in a, in the independence of these particular countries, especially post uh, post Soviet and even in Poland. Even though they weren't you know a, a Soviet republic of the USSR per se, they were a, a you know they were a war pack nation. Um, Poles even there there's a there's been a huge uptick in nationalism and 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 ethnic nationalism in both countries. Poland especially. Um, in the past, like 10 ish, 15 years, Ukraine also, and it's been set in the hyperdrive since the since the war in Ukraine since 2014 ish, and the the Russianness of the East and the separatists operating there have really sent the rest of the country into this this kind of ethnic overdrive of you know we are Ukrainian, we are this is our country, we are independent. Ukrainians are not Russians, we're a separate thing, yada yada, 
and it it's really driven this kind of this ethno nationality thing out of the woodwork that wasn't super prevalent until relatively recently what's the russian interest in ukraine i mean it's easy to break all this stuff down you know when we go back in history like it's about territory um everybody wants a larger chunk of the map right more resources but um what, what do you know i mean I, if this is outside your expertise don't you don't have to dive into it but what's the russian interest in control um influence i'll say over ukraine there's a lot of there's a lot of uh russian interest there um that interest stems from a couple different factors um it it depends on what you want to believe in terms of their relevance like from first to last of what's more important to them sure. and what's least important um number one what they're going to say especially what you see on the news typically is that they're um they have a vested interest in ensuring that there is a buffer between the russian federation and nato states mm-hmm. um states that are part of the of the north atlantic treaty organization um which has steadily e- expanded since the fall of the soviet union to be right up on their doorstep um, and so that's that's going to be number one. Um, number two is especially in the regions that you see the separatists operating in in eastern Ukraine, uh, you're going to be natural resources there. Um, your natural resources are going to include coal. I think there's some there might be some natural gas and oil there as well, but coal's the big one, especially. Uh, the Donbass is what um, uh, colloquially uh, that region is referred to as the eastern uh, regions of Ukraine is um, uh, Donbass okay. and Lugansk. Um, and those are uh, Donbasses in the North Lugansk is south. Um, and currently what the separatists hold um, isn't even the entirety of those two. Uh, we'll call them like there. I think I can't remember the actual name for them, rayons, but it's a, it's like a like a county basically within Ukraine. Um, but those two counties essentially are like, we'll say, 75 percent occupied by the um, separatists right now. And those two regions are very industry heavy textiles and uh, coal especially. And because of their proximity to Russia proper um, or the borders of, of the Russian Federation, you also have more ethnic Russians there. Um, and you know whether or not they consider themselves ethnically Russian or Ukrainian or a little bit of both depends on the person. Um, but you do, have, uh, you do have a lot of natural resources there. The other thing, and this is especially uh, important when it comes to Crimea, is a warm water port. The Black Sea is one of the few ports that um, the Russian Federation has a border on that does not freeze throughout the year. Um, when you think about the logistics involved in having in protecting your own borders or having a sea route, imagine if, if for three to four months out of the year in the United States, we had no way of getting out of any of our seaports, like they just froze up, and you have to invest in all these ships that are specific to ice breaking and things like that. That would be that's a that's a pretty significant investment. Um, so. A big part of the Crimea piece is to have a warm water port that they can launch ships from any time of the year. It's warm enough. And Crimea, way back for a long time, even in the imperial era, but especially through the Soviet Union, uh, Crimea was kind of a, a playground of the of the the wealthy and the, the higher ups in the party. Um, it was kind of a it's a vacation spot. Uh, Sochi is uh, further south of there in Rus- in uh, Russian Federation, but that's a warm water port and kind of a, a vacation city. That's kind of historically been a, a place that everybody kind of gathers, um, and so there's a, there's a little bit of economic incentive there too, and you know having more water ports that you can 
bring people to and, and trade and things like that. But prior to them annexing Crimea in 2014, um, Russia continued to actually rent a uh, naval base on Crimea. Um, they, they, okay. they already had a base there that they maintained since the era of the Soviet Union. They'd had an agreement since the independence of Ukraine that they could basically rent it, um, kind of like us having, you know, naval ports in like Bahrain or whatever. Sure. That yeah. we, that we rent. Same, same idea. Um, and part of what kicked off some of the unrest in 2013, the, the Euromaidan um, protests, that was part of the what began um, the internal political conflict that would spill out to become kind of this conflict in Ukraine today. Um, but the Euromaidan protests started because um, Viktor Yanukovych, the, the then president of Ukraine, was getting ready to kind of start signing some economic deals um, that were going to get Ukraine closer economically to the West and to Europe. And at the last minute, he reneged on that and then decided to sign a separate economic deal with uh, Vladimir Putin. So um, I can't remember if it was Putin at that point or if it was Medvedev, but one of the two. Um, has, has this always been a contested relationship? Like when they were part of the Soviet Union, was it, were they the rebels? Were they the ones that were, were kind of speaking out? Were, or is this really something that's gained a lot of traction in terms of Ukrainian independence and um, nationalism? And I say that in a good way. I think nationalism sometimes has a negative connotation, but yeah, yeah. Um, pride in, in being Ukrainian. Is, is that something that really started after the fall of the Soviet Union? No. Well, so you have a cultural and ethnic difference. Like, for instance, um, one good, good example is the, the Soviet Union loved to trot out its how huge it was and how that crossed all these different cultures and ethnicities and languages. I think there was an estimated like 140 languages and dialects spoken in the former Soviet Union. It's, it's insane. Um, and there's so many tiny micro nations and micro ethnicities that used to populate these areas and still to this day in some places. Um, we often forget just how freaking big the Soviet Union was and even the Russian Federation today. Um, but Ukraine was always tried out as having this kind of different. It was the second largest republic within the, the Soviet Union. The largest republic was Russia. People forget that Russia is not really interchangeable with the term Soviet Union. I know that we colloquially do that and we used to do it during the Cold War because it's, it's easy, you know, but Russia, the Russian Federative Soviet Republic was one of 15 ethnic republics within the USSR. Ukraine was the second largest one in Russia. And Ukraine had always kind of stood out because it was the breadbasket. That's what a lot of people know it as. It was the, it was some of the more, the most fertile land in the former Soviet Union that could produce your bread, your grains, things like that, that were necessary and coal like I mentioned in Donbass. Um, but where a lot of your animosity, especially between Russia and Ukraine starts, you, a lot of people, you can point to it all the way back to the Soviet uh, Bolshevik, the, or the um, Polish Bolshevik war, like I mentioned earlier. Um, but the big one is what's known as the Holodomor. The Holodomor was the basically man-made man uh, famine in Ukraine that happened from about the early, late 1920s to early 1930s at, at its peak. Um, and, you know, several million starved to death. There's not a solid number on it, but it was essentially via collectivization uh, controlled at the top by Stalin and the Central Committee in Moscow. Moscow, even though it's in the Russian Republic, always served as the kind of head. It's the DC, the Washington DC, the Soviet Union, essentially. 
And that meant you had representatives from all the ethnic republics there, um, but the decisions were ultimately made by um, the, uh, the party and the top heads of the party there. And when they began collectivization, collectivization- the Haldemore thing, real Hold Haldemore. Hold Holodemore. I'm not going to say that right. Holodemore. It's not like a Holodemore, but it's yeah. Holodemore. Hey, are you familiar with that, Sayer? No. Well, no, not that term. But you're talking about when I just know generally that's what Stalin did was they would. Well, what happened was they killed all the the landowners who were the farmers, and then they went through and they would kill cattle and all sorts of stuff, and it created famine. So well, I, the intentional aspect of it, I guess, targeting Ukraine, I don't, I was not aware of that. I don't know enough about it to know if Ian just like dropped some explosive comments. But what I've <laughs> learned over the last couple of years is that it's a very controversial topic within certain yes. circles. I don't think I understand though, which, like, what is the controversial part of it? The, the controversial part of it is that many people there, there is a debate over whether or not it was intentional to hurt Ukrainians and get them to kind of submit to Soviet power in that region, because there was a lot of resistance. Some of the earliest resistance to the expansion of the Soviet Union came from Ukraine um, through nationalistic and, and ethnic independence, you know, desires of their own. Um, the problem was there's a lot of there's a lot of people that debate whether it was purposely done by Stalin. Stalin was a Georgian, by the way, for those who don't know, Stalin was not Russian. Ethnically, he was from Georgia, the country of Georgia, down in the Caucasus, um, and uh, his last name was actually um, shoot, I can't remember, but um, it's a very Georgian sounding last name. Not as um, powerful as Stalin. Yeah, it changed. Um, uh, it, he changed it to Stalin because it sounded more strong, more powerful. Um, but um, there was there was a thought. There's a lot of debate over whether or not it was intentional, an intentional program initiated by Stalin to try and get the Ukrainians to submit, or whether it was just collectivization gone horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. Um, like a lot of things in history, I think kind of sits somewhere between. Um, there was definitely a lot of animosity between ethnic Russians and the, the Soviet power organs against Ukraine. But there was also a dire need after, at this point, by the 20s, we'll say 10 years of war-ish, um, to, to start producing grain, start producing things, and Ukraine happened to be that breadbasket. And to if you're going to institute a new policy, which is collectivization, collectivization is going to hit all over the now becoming Soviet Union by the early 20s. It's going to hit Ukraine hardest because they have the farms, they have the what we're called the uh, the kokoznits. Uh, those are the collective farms, um, and uh, they're going to get hit hardest because they have all the all the agriculture. So the 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 controversial part is that a lot of ethnic Ukrainians and Ukrainians say see it as a targeted effort against Ukrainians for being Ukrainian. And they also just happen to have farms. And a lot of Russians and other people who don't agree with that in Ukraine see it as a, an unfortunate circumstance of the collectivization and Stalin uh, and Stalin's leadership and his forced industrialization practices of the early Soviet Union. That's, that's working. I was going to ask if there was a line there on the border with how people felt. And I guess I could see how that would play out. So that could still be, I mean, you're talking, I might have cut you off before you got into it, but numbers of dead, millions, right? I think I think it, the low the low estimates are like 1.5. Uh, high estimates are like some people claim as high as six, um, but it's it's starvation. And the other thing is is there's other factors going on here too. There's war and there's continued conflict. 
throughout this period. There's also, even, even since 1919 and 1920, there's a Ukrainian insurgency that's operating within Ukraine against Soviet you know, government organs and things like that. It gets stamped out for the most part, but they exist and they definitely um, are rebuilt during World War II when the opportunity arises. Um, there's people who collaborate with the Germans intentionally to try and do as much harm to communism as they can. There's other people who just wish to, you know, stay separate from the Soviet Union and do anything they can to keep the Germans and the Russians out of their, their backyards. Um, and uh, after the I gotta, war- I was gonna say real quick question back on the uh, Ukrainian or the, um, the famine, what year was that? Uh, it's kind of late, it begins in kind of the late twenties as collectivization really kicks in and hits its peak in like 32, 33. Okay, so it's like the decade before World War II. Yeah, that's and, and, in the timeline, and it is after Lenin. It is a Stalin thing. Yes, very much so. And and okay. um, timeline-wise, when you think about it, Stalin doesn't totally solidify power at the highest rings of the Soviet Union until about 28, 29. Um, Trotsky is his biggest kind of um, right. opponent within the the leadership. Um, but uh, yeah, Stalin, uh, Lenin. For those who don't know, Lenin dies in uh, January of nineteen twenty-four. Um, but he's really kind of combat ineffective by like 22 because he's had several strokes back to back um, by the early 20s um, and he's not super involved. And by that point, everyone's making moves to kind of position themselves in power, but he's kind of held up as this kind of revered figure. Um, but um, no, the mid thirties is when it really kicks in. And the other thing that's amazing when you think about it, there's a whole generation that is now going to fight in World War II that's basically been raised on in, in a famine. And this is going to be the bulk of your fighting population. Ukrainians account for a huge portion, ethnically, of the Red Army in World War II because they're the second largest republic. Um, and when you think about it, it's kind of like the Great Depression here. And when you think about it, I was just talking to somebody about it the other day, the, the stark differences between what we consider acceptable for combat now versus then in 100 years, like just in World War One, I, I was talking to, at work the other day about it. In World War One, a similar percentage to what we claim today is not fit for military service because of being overweight or having whatever issues. It was the same percentage, but in reverse 100 years ago. They were all too malnourished and their teeth were too screwed up to be considered for military service in a lot of cases. And it's something that you don't often think about, but it's, it's funny to think that someone could be too skinny um, for military service. Um, mm. But that's a that's did, a big factor um, really plays into World War II. Did Russia the the state of Russia have the same? Did they have go through the famine from the collectivism that Ukraine did and all of that? Yes, but not to the extent that Ukraine did because they're not Russia isn't they're producing like on an agricultural level, but they're not producing like Ukraine is. Um, they're but I what happens differently. In Russia, as you have a lot more of a flock, you, you still have collectivization and, and farmers out in Russia, but you have a lot more moved to the cities. Um, and that's the, the other thing that really totally shifts the dynamic is um, in, the, in the 20s and 30s, this forced industrialization project that they call it the five-year plan. It's, it's, a, it's when they start this concept of, of basically putting on paper, these are what we need to do economically. This is what we have to do to achieve it. Time now, it needs to end and hit the goals we set in five years. And the and, first few- And this is Trotsky or Stalin? A uh, bit of both, um, a lot of Stalin, but it's a bit of both at this point. Um, and they, they're they gonna, this these forced, 
it's called a planned economy. These planned economy, five-year plans, they call it, are going to dictate how the Soviet Union runs its economy, really, for its entire history. The last, the 12th five-year plan is going to be in 1989 is when it kicks in and it doesn't see it through. But um, because of this forced plan structure, the first few years, it works. They meet their goals, but it's at the expense of people starving to death and people being forcibly moved from the countryside to the city and, you know, building factories at a breakneck pace, you know, kind of things and, and buying whole factories from the United States and shipping, shipping them to Siberia or whatever. But mm. anyway, Ukraine, Ukraine is, is um, singled out for being this agriculture hub. And because of the Holodomor and the, and the mass starvation and what seems like a very targeted act um, in the minds of the Ukrainians, that's going to contribute to animosities that boil up, especially during World War II um, and resistance groups you get in Ukraine during, and that even exist a little bit for a while after into the 50s in some groups in Ukraine. Um, and then that's going to continue into the Cold War, but it's not going to be bubbling at the surface, kind of like, like Yugoslavia or anything. It, it dies down. In the post-war period, the Soviet Union really does start to provide for people. And when you have, you have to think, we often make fun of the fact that in the Soviet Union, they all live in these big gray apartment buildings and everybody's the same and they all, it's all egalitarian because everyone's got their apartment. But for, you got to understand how bad things were for, many, for a vast majority of this population to understand that most people in the Soviet Union by the 50s and 60s were happy just to have a roof over their head and have the state provide them this drab concrete building that they could live in and everyone can live there in a public transportation system that works and everyone having, for the most part, a guaranteed job. You may not make a ton of money um, and you may not always be paid, but you have somewhere to go. You're generally going to get food and you're generally going to have transportation and a place to keep your family safe. And that speaks so much to the complacency in the 60s and 70s. It's going to eventually become the era of what we call stagnation, where the economy kind of starts to crumble. And then you start to see aspirations of independence again because the Soviet Union has become so bloated, decrepit, bureaucratic, and 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 old uh, on the whole mm. uh, by the 1980s. Was there like a honeymoon period after the Second World War, or the Great Patriotic War? I think it's sometimes called in Russia, where the, the Ukraine. I mean, so many Ukrainians fought, and you know, came out on the victorious side. I mean, there was massive devastation, I'm sure, all across Ukraine. But was there a period of, of, yeah, was there a honeymoon period where they were maybe a little closer to the Soviet Union, not itching to, to uh, separate? Well, and, and that, yeah, there, there is what you could consider that to be a honeymoon period, especially in the post-war period. By the mid-50s, especially, you've got, you have this huge effort to venerate all these veterans that have come back. And even though there are a lot of, you know, resistance groups and things that, that, that spring up during the war of Ukrainians based on ethnic tensions and things, the vast majority of Ukrainians are going to fight like they've been told to and fight in the Red Army. And they're going to go all the way to Western Europe and come back. And, you know, the, the sanctified approach to this whole generation of veterans, it really, it, it's really hard to understand. But there's still a day, there's a, there's a national holiday every day in the Soviet Union, and that's still celebrated in most former Soviet republics too, Ukraine, I believe. Um, but it's where they, they basically celebrate um, they're veterans of the Second World War. And they, they have these marches where everyone will have a placard where they print the, the wartime photo of their relative that was either killed or fought. Like the, we had 16 million-ish Americans under arms in World War II, but like the portion of the population that that was, 
I don't think is near what it was in the Soviet Union. Like every single person knew somebody who died or had had fought. And it's, it was fought it, on their territory, right? I mean, they, they couldn't avoid yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't have a choice. And and because of that, the Soviet the Soviet government uses that to ensure the compliance and the kind of complacency of, of the Ukrainian population, all these veterans by, you know, venerating them, building monuments, establishing this this culture around the, the great patriotic war. Um, and especially, like I said, by the 50s, the collective farm structure is starting to even out. It's starting to work kind of for the Soviet Union. Now, the first the first two years after World War II are rough. They're the two worst harvests in the Soviet Union's history. Um, and it, it really, yeah, it kicks them while they're down in 46. You say, imagine coming out of the Second World War and then that. Yeah. Well, and, and put in perspective that 16 million number, you said that was the entire U.S. Armed Forces, 16 million. It's around there. It's like, either 13 or 16. Yeah, well, around there is fine because you go on Wikipedia and look at, and I don't know if this, how accurate this number is, but I mean, up to 29 million dead Soviets from World War II, yep. which is just like, You've got it's, it's almost double the amount of U.S. forces and that I were in service. Died. Yeah. yeah, and that I were think in service. What's astonishing too is that like so many of these massive pitched battles on scales that we can scarcely imagine. We're talking hundred thousand soldiers in a single front. The Ukrainian front was an entire front of World War II um, for the Soviets in the East. Um, Ukraine itself. The country today is basically one massive grave. There are whole areas of forests in Ukraine where tens of thousands of bodies are still buried. And there are forests that grow because they are fed by the bodies of thousands of soldiers. It's, you cannot wrap your mind around the, the amount of dead that fell it, just in, in the region of Ukraine, um, in what is today the nation. There are whole forests that feed these trees. It's it's astonishing. And you've probably seen photos before of like, they, they go around the internet all the time of like helmets with trees growing through them and like machine guns were left and a tree grew around it kind of thing like that. Oh yeah. There are whole fronts in Ukraine where just thousands of people in unmarked graves and they, and they still not, cannot identify these people. And it's that, I think part of that helped solidify Ukraine. And I think the Soviet Union also took a different approach after Stalin died. Stalin dies in 53. And you see shortly after that in the late 50s, Khrushchev actually, Crimea had been a holding, an imperial holding of uh, Imperial Russia for, for a long time, because again, one more report. Um, in the 50s, Khrushchev gifts um, Crimea back to the Ukrainian SSR, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, one of those 15 republics in the larger Soviet Union. And that's why when Ukraine gains independence, there's always been a military base there because Ukraine is a whole army of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. It's a, it's a whole the Ukrainian um, military region, essentially. Um, but they, that's why there's a base in, in Crimea. All of the republics all contribute to the Soviet army. It's just the Soviet army. Nobody thinks of it being any different. Yeah. And that's why things get complicated when Ukraine seeks independence in December of 91 and Russia wants that port. And while it is now kind of culturally Ukrainian by 1991, because it's part of the Ukrainian Republic, when they seek independence, that includes Crimea. And Russia goes, hey, we're on good terms here, right? Because you got to remember in 1991, it wasn't Russia versus all the other republics. It was the center, the Soviet government based in Moscow versus all the other republics. You got to remember that like guys like Yeltsin, 
the first president of the Russian Federation after the dissolution. Yeltsin is elected within the Soviet Russian Congress as president of the Russian Federation before the Soviet government um, officially ends, collapse. Um, so the first three people to really push for independence within the Soviet Union, in December, December 2nd, 1991, there's a little meeting <clears throat> out in Belarus, um, underground, essentially who become the future presidents of those three regions meet together in Belarus in this forest, unbeknownst to Gorbachev, who's still trying to keep the Soviet Union together in Moscow. The presidents of Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia meet together, sign a pact, and say, hey, we're leaving. And as some of the biggest republics, that sets a huge precedent for the other ones. And soon Kazakhstan follows and all these other Asian um, republics. And they, they leave. And so Russia is on good terms initially with Ukraine. Pretty good terms, because they're right next door. They both sought independence from the Soviet government at the same time. And Russia goes, hey, we'd still like to have a warm water port. Can we make a deal with you? And they go, yeah, sure. And then periodically, I think every like four or eight years, the Ukrainian um, parliament essentially has to vote to renegotiate or re-ratify that rental agreement. And that's part of what kicks off stuff in 2013. Actually. So I got a question about the fall of the Soviet Union because yeah, I feel like it's this middle ground. On the one hand, we present it as like, you wake up one morning and the house fell down and it's not quite that extreme, but it also wasn't taken apart nail by nail and placed neatly in the corner. What happened with all the military equipment, the Soviet military equipment that was in Ukraine, including the warm water port, when the Soviet Union fell, did Ukraine just be like, this is ours now? Uh, kind of, yeah. Uh, so in a lot of cases, the so the Ukrainian military district, so all of what we essentially all of what we see today as the nation of Ukraine was its own military district within the USSR. It was a whole, it was several, I think, Soviet armies um, within armies as in groups, um, mm -hmm. army groups within the USSR, uh, the Soviet army. And the Ukrainian military district, essentially what happens in 1991 is they, they parse out whatever equipment falls on your territory is, is yours now. That's going to be the base of your military. Now, the one exception to that was nukes. Ukraine held a, a a good portion of nuclear missiles and sure. nuclear arsenal for the Soviet army. And part of the agreement of the independence to kind of allow that to happen smoothly was that they agree to hand off their nukes back to the Russian Federation because all the control for the most part of the nukes was coming out of Moscow. Um, and when the Russian Federation, um, you know, takes on all the nukes that they have on their territory, they negotiate Ukraine to hand them off. So that's a big bargaining chip um, for them to kind of, be given everything else they need. And I think they get some economic, They there's economic agreement that involves the movement of the nukes. Um, but essentially, yeah, the Ukrainian military district, the, the general that heads the Ukrainian military district actually plays a big part because in 1991, everything was very much on a knife's edge. If the military wanted to, from the center, technically, your generals that are controlling the Soviet army's Ukrainian district could put down any idea of independence within Ukraine. For the most part, these generals are either sympathetic or ethnically Ukrainian themselves. So they're not going to put that down on their region. But a big part of why it disintegrates in the republics it does peacefully is that the military commanders agree to, to agree to it. And then they essentially, in most cases, like the Ukrainian military district's commander in 1991, becomes the first head of the Ukrainian military um, in 1991 and 92. So you, there's, there's a lot of mutual agreements, a lot of talking behind closed doors, deals for economic, with economic incentives in exchange for nukes, um, 
and that happens in Ukraine especially. And that, and that starts off at least in 91, 92 with pretty amicable relations between the, so the, the now Russian Federation and the state of Ukraine. Which is all by agreement. You know, they had dialogue and a give and take compromise, it seems. You know, the, the Ukrainians didn't, it sounds like they gave the nukes in exchange for something, right? Yep. And so then what's the issue now? Like, why are we potentially resorting Seemed to violence? <laughs> so, uh, so you can't, a big part, there, there's, two, there's two things um, that play into the current tensions. One is Ukraine increasingly leaving the sphere of Russia or wanting to get out of the sphere of Russia. Even though the Soviet Union dissolved, Russia was still a huge country with a pretty large military and also an ego. They, over time, they still have, there's a couple things that play into it. And it's hard to talk about them without people thinking you're like a Soviet apologist. And this is the hardest thing I have to debate with people. I saw, I saw some TikTok the other day that I loved. It was like, it was a, it was a teacher teaching about the Soviet Union in their class. And they go, and they go, Soviet Union, complicated. And then it cuts to a student and they go, Soviet Union, good? And they go, no, 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 Soviet Union, complicated. Not bad, complicated. And they're like, Soviet's good. And I'm like, they're like that's like my, that's my first yeah, yeah. I'm like going to talk with people. It, the thing is, is that you got to remember, by the mid 90s, we have seen Germany, Russia has seen Germany invade them not once, but twice in the span of 30 years in, you know, the last 80 years at that point in the, in the 1990s. And they're very wary of Germany being militarized and being part of a former organization that was literally designed to combat and counter the growing power of the Soviet Union. NATO was formed in 1949. Initially, most people don't re remember, realize this, but NATO was formed, it was based on a treaty in 1947 between France and the UK to have a mutual defense pact against Germany and the Soviet Union. In the event that Germany ever reemerged as a military power, again, this has happened twice to one generation, in, yeah, thirty years. Um, they're a little bit wary, and then that has eventually uh, eventually expands to another agreement in '48 that involves the Benelux countries, Netherlands, you know, um, the Dutch, things like that. Um, and then in 1949, it grows to become NATO, the North the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, headed by the U.S., UK, um, UK France. I think there's. Iceland, Italy, you know, the Benelux countries, several of them in Western Europe. And it's meant to counter the growing threat of, of the Soviet Union and a potential resurgent Germany. Now that all goes out the window. That, that attitude dissolves very quickly um, because the division of Germany quickly, it becomes politically advantageous to have West Germany very much in the Western NATO camp. And the East is obviously in the Warsaw Pact camp. But in 55, the... Western allies and NATO decide to allow for the rearming of, of Germany, and they're eventually inducted into NATO. And that action has more of an impact on the Soviet Union than the actual establishment of NATO. NATO is a threat to the Soviet Union, and they kind of see it as that, but they've got their hands full with just managing the territories they've occupied already. But when they allow Germany to rearm and join NATO, that sets the pace. And that's why you see the Warsaw Pact, arguably the Soviet counter to NATO established after Germany is allowed into NATO. And so thinking of that context, NATO never actually has a military engagement that it's involved in throughout the Cold War until 1991-ish. A lot of people confuse NATO with UN. 
Yeah. And the UN has several actions. The UN is very busy. Um, but NATO itself does not get involved in any military conflicts until after the Soviet Union dissolves. And remember, Russia is the largest republic of the former Soviet Union. And understandably, they're a little wary when in the mid-90s, um, East Germany is, you know, taken in by West Germany. They become the Federal Republic, and then they join NATO as a collective. And when that happens, Russia sees, what the hell, guys? Like, we, we divided these guys purposely to keep them from being at war with each other. And I know you guys are going to occupy them, but the, the big debate initially and the guarantees that um, the Soviets required of the West Germans and NATO when, when the wall falls in November of 1989, it's, it drastically shifts how NATO operates. And the one thing that the Soviets are saying is like, hey, we're not going to get involved. We don't want a Budapest. We don't want a, a Hungary situation again. This is not our fight. All we want is your guarantee that Germany is going to be a neutral country. We do not want them rearming. We don't want them part of a military, you know, group. We want this new unified Germany to be neutral. And early on, they're like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. And of course, they joined NATO. And so when Germany, a unified Germany joins NATO, that really speaks bigger to Russia than it does to us. We just see, ah, it's, you know, it's, they're all the Federal Republic and there's not communism anymore and they're part of NATO, whatever. But that looking from the Soviet perspective of things and the and now the Russian perspective, that's a big deal. And that's when the tide starts to shift in the 90s from NATO being kind of working like a UN more, like as a, as a security organization within Europe and expanding into humanitarian stuff and military peacekeeping operations like we see in Yugoslavia. That's when it really shifts and Russia starts to see it as a competitive organization. Also keep in mind during this whole period in the 90s, Russia has never allowed into NATO, despite the fact that they are no longer the Soviet Union, they're a different political entity than the Russian Federation is not the Soviet Union. It inherits a lot of the political and military equipment and minutia of the Soviet Union, but it is not the same entity. And they start to see the tide shift against them. And also this is not helped by after Germany joins 1999, you have Poland, you have several other former Warsaw Pact states that now join NATO. NATO's starting to shift a little bit more closer to the Russian borders. And you go, what's the deal? And they tossed Russia a bone a couple of times in the 90s and 2000s with, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's the uh, the Joint Council um, and a, uh, the Partnership for Peace. And these are essentially agreements where, where NATO allows Russia a seat at the table and in NATO meetings, kind of, and they can have an opinion but generally that's about all it is. They don't, they, they get a vote kind of, but they're almost always, it's kind of like them being at the security council in, in the UN where they always cast a vote. And sometimes that vote can be the deciding factor between doing something or not. But in NATO, when Russia was allowed in with these kind of joint partnerships, they were never a full member of NATO, but they were allowed to kind of sit at the table and watch, but they couldn't do anything. And this kind of paints the shift now. And Ukraine is not a NATO member. For anyone wondering, Ukraine is not part of NATO, but they have sought NATO membership, I think it's since like 2004 or 2005. Um, and real quick, NATO, as I understand it, the uh, significant thing is uh, attack one of us, attack all of us. Isn't that a mantra? Collective defense. That is, that is literally, it's, it's known as Article 5 of the 14 articles of the NATO agreement, the treaty. So NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the organization is NATO that we think of. It's all the, the armies together, but they're all based around a collective security treaty, the North Atlantic Treaty. 
Um, and that treaty has 14, uh, 14 points to it, 14 articles. The fifth article is the one that outlines essentially an attack on one will be considered an attack on all. And funnily enough, the only time that that article has ever actually been invoked, 9-11. That's part of how we get the uh, coalition mm. for um, the ISAF eventually and later Iraq. Um, kind of. Iraq's a little different, but 9-11 um, is the only time when an attack on, an, on a member was invoked. And it's, and it's funny, too, because it's not even like from another state actor, which in, in the articles, when you read them, it's very much set out to outline an attack on someone as being an attack from another state sure. entity. There's very little way of how to, how to react to a terrorist attack. Um, you know, but this was built at a time in the 50s when everything was assumed to be state for state. So something when I try to look at the other side of this, because it's easy, I think we can from the US be like, what's the big deal, guys? This is a defensive thing. Don't be aggressive and you got nothing to worry about with NATO. But I I, I try to think of it and if my neighbor starts stockpiling arms, right? Every week there's more and more weapons and ammunition and, and and sandbags and mines coming into their house. And they say, don't worry, it's just defensive in case you do anything. It's like, right, but at some point I'm getting a little uncomfortable. You've got so much firepower right there. Because you, you could say this is purely defensive, but mankind uh, changes over time, right? And, and there's nothing to say that in 50 years, NATO doesn't decide to get aggressive. Um, we don't know. Well, and that, and that, and that kind of feeds back to how Russia always viewed NATO. A similar thing. They're not being allowed to join NATO. And they asked several times. They wanted to be part of NATO. And they were always they always kind of dance around it and and they're not being allowed allowed to be part of nato they're allowed to see the table but get no no say and they're watching as all their neighbors join nato and start to get this funding and organization and and become more and more western aligned and that is alarming to them um and it, and it also historically it plays into this idea of russia always wanting a buffer they always want to make sure that whatever people who they determine to be their enemy or to seek harm against them they have land they have a, a, a place to fall back to because the other thing especially through the cold war that it's really hard to get people to wrap your head around we had of course our nato allies in europe are our allies the u.s is allies they are our allies in europe but the u.s has a whole friggin' ocean between there we we have no dog in the fight sure there are nukes but like we don't have to worry about a land invasion the soviet union has a couple of countries in the warsaw pact between them and their homeland but all they got to do is shoot right through there or drop airborne troops. And there are enemy troops in their country. The chances of that happening with us, the entirety of the Cold War, is not really possible. And, and the other thing is, too, that's also why there's a huge imbalance. Throughout the entirety of the Cold War, it, there's about generally a three to one uh, advantage of war pack nations to NATO nations on the European continent. And that just makes sense from, from yeah. a statistic point of view because it's, their, it's all their home countries. Um, and that's why we did the reforger missions constantly was to test our ability to take a whole division out of the field, fly it over the ocean, land it and fight if we ever need to. Um, for those who know what reforger was, return of forces to Germany. Um, it was a long running military exercise during the Cold War, starting in the late 60s, that basically tested the Americans ability to move our military via air and sea to an extent to Europe and fight a war if the Soviet Union were to invade a NATO ally. Let's see if we can um, tie we, the the modern, the current ongoing issue to something historical. Is there anything in these tensions between Russia and Ukraine that today looks like 
is there anything we can go back on and be like, oh, this happened in 97 or 2004? Um, or is this build up on the Russian border, the, the arguments over NATO, is this new? I, there, I mean, there's, of course, real simple parallels with Germany and World War II and things like that. Um, you know, Poland border, things, things of that nature. Um, Czechoslovakia, appeasement, you know, there's all those comparisons that are very easy. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is that the massing of troops, Russia, very much like everybody else, uses their military as a political tool. Um, while the members of the military may not be politicized, um, the military as a whole is used as a bargaining tool. Part of Russian doctrine today, and, a, and it's kind of been the case with, with Russia, with the Soviet Union in the past, but part of its doctrine is the use of threats of a large invasion, things like that. It's part of their larger doctrine for, for gaining the political outcomes they want. We saw it actually earlier last year. They did the exact same thing. It didn't last as long, but they built up about, I think, 100,000 troops-ish on the border, sat them over there looking over across the border at Ukraine, didn't do anything, freaked everybody out just to show everybody they can do it. And then they claimed, oh, it's an exercise, everybody go home. And there's it, and it, there is there is some validity to that. This the the Russian army, especially in the last ten years, went through this massive new update, and they are now smaller, more professional, better equipped, and better trained. And part of their doctrine is they do snap readiness drills, and I that's like they keep their readiness at something like eighty to ninety percent, which comparable to us is like. 50 or 60 percent other than unless you're like the 82nd airborne qrf guys the first brigade whoever's the rotating brigade like the the rest of the army is not prepared to do a snap hundred thousand troop movement right at moment but this the russian army is kept that way for training and, and for training purposes and so it's not unheard of for them to do throughout russia to say hey this whole military district you guys are going to kamchatka or you're going to the east coast like for those who play risk i hope you know where kamchatka is at it's like way yeah, north yeah. Exactly uh, what I thought of when you said that. <laughs> there's, your, there's your one mention of an Irkutsk. Um, but uh, Boy, and vodka. They, go like, <laughs> they go like, hey, you all got to go over there today. How fast can you do it? And them being able to do that has two purposes. It's political. It shows everybody that they're capable. And it also is a drill for them. 100,000 troops is nothing to snuff at. Granted, right. their ground forces are 380-ish thousand right now. That's like a third of their freaking military. Yeah. That's a lot of troops. But they're also engaged in other stuff. They've got Syria. They've got the northern borders. They've got Poland. They've got Kaliningrad on the border, the little enclave up there that most people don't notice. But there's a tiny little enclave just north of Poland, completely detached from Russia, called Kaliningrad. Oh, um, look at that. And this is – that's a huge part of the current tension in Europe is that they have missiles there. They have missile defense and we believe nuclear weapons um, there as in a strategic location. Kaliningrad was kept, it's formerly part of East Prussia, it was part of Germany that Russia, that the Soviet Union kept after World War II. Um, and it's a port city, but it's tiny. It used to be a huge industrial hub. They made a ton of TVs for the Soviet Union, like a third of the TVs made in the Soviet Union were made in Kaliningrad. But um, they, it's basically a massive military enclave now, right on Poland's border where the Russia otherwise does not share a land border with Poland. Um, and that's a, that's a huge part of strategic uh, Russian interests in the area. Um, and that's also why Poland is, is increasingly worried right now um, because they essentially have Russia on their border, literally. Um, but they, 
I don't know what to compare Ukraine to. There's it's it's comparable to anything else. It kind of sounds like it, I guess, but it all depends on where it goes from here. And same, same big picture, different details kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you see that there's a lot of different options of where they could go with this and what they could do. Russia has a strategic interest in the regions already held. I don't think, and a lot of experts believe there is no real strategic or political necessity on Russia's part to invade Ukraine as a whole take the whole damn country. Not only that, but it would be extremely difficult, um, I think. I, I think it would be tougher than they, than they think. And here's the other thing. I don't believe NATO would ever get involved, at least not to the degree that people would think. It wouldn't become an all-out slugfest because we, they don't like to say it, but there's a reason that we always kind of keep our distance from Ukraine. We have a training mission there. Canada's actually really active there. Canada's had a rotating training mission there with their National Guard for, for basically since the war started in like 2015. Um, the UK has a rotating battalion. We had um, the uh, the Rockassans, I'm pretty sure. They sent a battalion or two out there for a while on a rotating basis from the, uh, the 82nd, had a rotating battalion out there to train um, the Ukrainian National Guard. But there's a reason we don't have bases in Ukraine. One, because it's not a NATO member yet. Um, and two, it's because Ukraine doesn't really provide a whole lot for NATO. It doesn't provide a whole lot for Western Europe, other than just being a frontline country to our adversary, the Russian Federation. It doesn't give us any real advantage. We have the strategic placements we need to cover the area around Ukraine. We don't need bases in Ukraine. It seems like it could be a, a, a tipping point as well, where or a, a tripwire. If you have U.S. troops there and invasion kicks off um, and American troops are killed, then all of a sudden there might be a cry for um, action. But today, yes. as they're not a member of NATO, um, we can sit back and make a determination if it's in our best interest or not. Right. And, and we there's there's a reason we have as few troops there as we do. And at NATO, NATO has tried to do a soft touch approach where they have just enough troops there. They can say, hey, we're helping out. We're training you. We're advising. But we're not invested. And that's because, like you said, any more than that, it would be very much a threat or at least perceived as that by the Russian Federation. We are we are definitely aware of that, um, of the political implications of it. Um, but there's very little they offer NATO in the way of them joining NATO, too. Um, they're they're kind of poor. They, um, their military has been updating very much in the last few years due to non-lethal aid and now lethal aid that the U.S. and NATO partners have been providing them. But they're not, they have some special forces and you see a lot of photos, they're high speed dudes online, but the vast majority of their reservists and their militia and their national guard, they're still carrying AK-74s from the 1980s. They're still, some of them are still even wearing steel pot helmets from World War II. Like wow. they're, these guys, they're, those are probably training troops, but like it, they, they don't provide a ton to us. And I think, I think the most realistic course of action is kind of an annexation sort of thing. My, and this is what I've been telling most people. When you think about it, the two, the portions, when you look up maps of the areas that are held by the separatists, uh, by the way, for those who don't know, there's a name for the ongoing operation in Eastern Ukraine. The Ukrainians call it the ATO, the anti-terrorist operation. Um, they've called it that since 2014. That's their official name, basically their operation name for the fight there. Mm -hmm. um, they have medals for it and everything. So they always refer to it as the ATO. Um, but those two regions, Luhansk and Donbass, the, the, the counties that they've occupied and the portions they have occupied, they've held on to, give or take, for the last five years. It's essentially turned into a trench war. 
Um, they're using UAVs to drop bombs on each other. Um, they're they're using they're using literally wired telephones from a trench to the rear, like World War One, because it can't be hacked by um, by you know cyber forces of either side. We actually we're just getting ready to put up and um, display at work at the, at the museum talking about that and pace plants and talking about alternatives of communication. And as dumb as it sounds, wired communication like a like a like a telephone today, it's an enclosed secure line that can't be hacked, other than maybe someone splicing it in the middle and maybe getting close enough to run a wire, but that's not really something that didn't tactically happen. But I think the most likely course of action, because it's been so steady, the lines have not changed and the Russian separatists still hold the regions they do. I could see one day everyone wakes up and little green men are in Donbass and Luhansk. And while there have already been stories and, and proven um, evidence of Russian regulars, you know, in fighting in Ukraine for the separatists um, and being the majority of troops there, um, I think we will wake up one day and see little green men without national flags on their sleeve. They're literally just going to be Russian troops and they took their patches off. They're all going to have their face masks and they're going to be standing around at the at the capitals and at the areas in Donbass. And lo and behold, somehow in the last 24 hours, they've had a snap election and 98% of the population has voted to join the Russian Federation. And overnight, hey. um, it's it's annexed and it's part of the Russian Federation. And I, I think that's the most likely course of action because it's an immediate there. There's no one stopping them from rolling over the border and mass because they're essentially have friendly units there and have for the last five years. They they gain the resources that are there. They're already under the control or what's currently under control of the separatists. They they gain an annex that region and it's their end game. They're not going to go any further. There's no advantage to them going further and trying to take Kiev or what have you. And I think that's the best political win they can get to make Putin look good at home, to get what they ultimately may have wanted in terms of resources in Ukraine at the end of the day. Um, and they don't have to fire a shot. Kind of like kind of like Crimea. So I wasn't and to be clear, just um, this is just a section we're talking about that the current Russian separatists have a foothold in and possess a territory yeah, that you're describing. It's pretty tiny, actually. It's like, when you look at it on the map, it's like I, like I said, there's like two, the two counties, essentially, Donbass and Luhansk. They don't even occupy the entirety of those two counties. They, they have about three quarters of each county. Um, okay. And they hold- And this the is not Crimea? No, this is, now the, the other thing, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that, it reminded me. The other thing that since the beginning of the war and since the annexation of, Cry of Crimea that the Russians have stated as an aim, or at least the separatists have stated, is creating a land bridge to uh, Crimea. Currently, Crimea only has, the Russians only have one way in and out of, of Crimea, and it's via a bridge through the peninsula at the bottom right corner, the southeast of it. They would love, I'm sure, from a tactical standpoint, to have territory held that takes them all the way to the land bridge to Crimea, that tiny little skinny bit between where Crimea meets the land of the actual Ukrainian land. Currently, Ukraine holds all that land just over the Crimea land bridge. But the city of Mariupol or Mariupol um, is basically the front line of where the Russian separatists went the furthest west. It's down near the coast. Um, and there's been talk for years. Initially, they've got a massive defensive kind of build up there because Mariupol was kind of the stopping point. That's where this major city was getting shelled, still gets shelled pretty regularly on the edges. Um, and the separatists for a long time, analysts had said, you know, there was buildups. 
And a lot of the separatists um, had built up down there in the south to try and create a land bridge. It, it would just be like a little corridor, mm-hmm. but hold enough land to get a land foothold to Crimea. Um, and that, that would be advantageous to the Russian Federation if they were able to do that. But I think they would continue to do that from a covert standpoint um, where they continue to arm people and send regulars that are claiming to be Russian separatists and then fight through and whatever. Seen influx in armor, maybe things like that. Well, I wasn't going to ask um, for a prediction of what's going to happen, Ian, because I know that spirals in so many different directions, but uh, you did it. And that actually, that was awesome. Um, it's a lot to think about and keep an eye on as we get moving yeah. here, but that's, that's probably a good way to wrap up today. I um, kind of expected this going in that I would come out of it realizing how little I know about Ukraine and the Cold War and the tensions with Russia. But what about you, sir? I spent vast majority of my time just trying to soak it in, understand <laughs> what was going on, because I don't. And so it was it was interesting. You, you definitely know your stuff. Appreciate it. It's a, it's a fascinating conflict. And I, I took an interest in it early on when it first started with the protests in 2013. And when I started seeing where it was going, I started following it really closely. And the, the infuriating thing for me is that I want to keep tabs on it. And there's nothing in English outside of when you get big dips and ebbs in the, in the, in the news cycle. Um, the only places right. you can look for any updates when there's not 150,000 Russian troops massing at the border is generally either from the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense webpage or from biased sources like Russia Today and, and mouthpieces for the Russian Federation. And so I try to keep tabs on it when I can. It's fascinating and it's kind of, it's, it's this strange hybrid of modern cyber warfare physical trench warfare and like a yeah like a static trench conflict because essentially the positions they're in now have been held more or less since mid to late 2015 and they haven't gone anywhere other than the fighting at um donbass airport which i highly recommend if anyone's interested in this con uh conflict learn about it it was basically a modern day stalingrad um this brand new airport that was built in 2013 brand new and finished 2015 14 late 14 early 15 becomes a massive uh, flashpoint for Ukrainian um, for the Ukrainian military and the Russian separatists and the Russian separatists held on to it but there was a ton of fighting urban warfare scrap metal destruction everywhere sniping it's it's brutal and there's a lot of videos of it online there's a couple different documentaries but it's it really was the kind of the high point of the conflict was this fighting at the airport um, and it for the most part hasn't really moved since but it it, it fascinated me that we had a modern near peer conflict in Europe, you know, in this day and age. And that, and that I think is for a lot of reasons has, has kept a lot of people interested and engaged in it. Well, it's going to keep changing. So as it does, we're going to keep you on speed dial to <laughs> keep the rest of us informed. But Ian, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Always good to catch up. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon, buddy. Anytime. Hey, if you've got an extra 16 seconds, it would really mean a lot to me if you left a review for War Stories. I read every single one of those, and we'll do our best in coming episodes to maybe shout some of those out just as a way of saying thank you for taking the time. But either way, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.